Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the changes. Today, I'm joined by a friend of mine, Nick Van Hoof. Hey man, welcome to the show. Hey Jan, I'm glad to be here man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we've known each other for a little while now. I think uh, from when uh, we met for Serverless Days Belgium a little while back, uh, as well as the fact that you and I are actually working together now on a client project, uh, Small World. Yeah, true. Indeed, I think I even know you from further back, of course, because when I got into Serverless, um, you were already the big man in Serverless world. So I joined Serverless Days Amsterdam once a couple of years ago to, to see you at work. Oh, right. I see. Good, good. Um, so I guess in that case, maybe we can uh, start by talking a little bit about you and uh, how you got into serverless. Sure. Um, oh, for me, uh, I've, I've been a software developer for, for four years now. And I think three of those have been um, in the cloud and in the serverless space. I actually didn't study as a software developer at school. It took me a very heavy fall on my head literally a fall on my head to start uh, doing software development. <laughs> but because of that fall, I had to train my memory and I, I took my, my books about Java and Python again. And I found it so interesting that I said, wow, this is what I want to do with my life. And um, then, I, then I joined um, a consultancy company that was looking for developers. Um, there I found that I could not grow fast enough. So, so I joined another company. And they were working together with a lot of clients that did, did a lot of work in the cloud space. Um, and that's how I joined Nike. And at Nike, I really got submerged in uh, serverless technology. And that's where I really found my passion and, and really built further on that um, with other clients, but also started out uh, Serverless Days Belgium with a couple of friends here and now really trying to build that serverless community in Belgium. Okay, sounds good. Uh, so uh, that's quite an interesting story. <laughs> I've not had. Uh, I, I, I guess I haven't heard uh, uh, anyone tell me that uh, they hurt themselves and uh, while they were recovering, and that's how they go into uh, coding. And uh, but uh, good for you. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. I think case, uh, <laughs> I think the passion was probably there already a longer time from from longer time ago. When I was a, small, a little kid around the year 2000, I was already building my own website about skateboarding. And, and then in high school, I did some browser scripting. But back, back then I had this friend and he was so good at his stuff. He, he knew everything about computers that I thought, whoa, this is so hard. He knows everything and I seem to know nothing. It's too hard for me. And uh, then, then I, I, I just followed my passion for engineering. Um, where I, of course, saw a of, bit of software development, but it wasn't the main focus until that moment where I had that life-changing fall and, and that I had to train my, my brain again. And, and from that moment on, it has been nothing but software development, actually. Okay, that's good to know. And I guess uh, you uh, got started in the right place. <laughs> you go straight into the cloud, uh, so you didn't have to go through some of the, I guess, the painful learning process of uh, working with... Uh, Machine, virtual machines and uh, you know configuring machines and all of that uh, you can you know you, you start with the good stuff <laughs> yeah indeed. of course I, I saw um also some legacy stuff at the client but it is true that i have um definitely uh, gone into the cloud immediately from the start of my career 
So I guess uh, coming straight into the cloud and learning you know, coding at the same time, uh, what were some of the biggest challenges that you had? Uh, we've had quite a few people, I guess, on this podcast talking about similar experience whereby you know, they went through code school, coding school and then they got straight into like a working environment, working with the cloud and uh, how quickly they were able to, I guess, uh, get up to speed. Uh, but what were some of the sort of challenges that you faced uh, along the way? Yeah, indeed, that's a good question, actually, because I think that sometimes people don't mention the challenges that are that are actually there for people that are new to it, because you always have this learning curve, of course. Um, and certainly for me, um, when I got into programming, then about five years ago, when I when I was still like let's say a little programming noob, um, I had to learn everything, right? Um, so the first year was quite hard because I had to learn all the different languages and took me a lot of time to get it all all done. Um, and then came the clouds where you have all this infrastructure and all those services and all those things that you can spin up and that you can leverage from the platform, but you don't know how they work. Um, so that is something that I think all people that get into cloud technology should know that there is still a learning curve about getting to know the best practices for using those services. Um, and that's also with serverless, it's, it's the same thing. Serverless actually, I think, allows you to really um, leverage the platform and, and, and really glue together all of the services for, from the cloud. But um, to use them in the right way, you, of course, have to know the best practices and you need someone with experience for that. Yeah, um, I mean, even for experienced engineers uh, coming into the cloud and AWS, uh, it is overwhelming. Uh, I mean, nowadays, there are just so many different services. Many of them are doing something similar. So just being able to choose the right service, uh, let alone uh, knowing and how the service works and understanding all the best practices around it is challenging, even for experienced engineers, uh, let alone someone who's uh, learning everything all at the same time. Uh, I, I do understand that can be overwhelming. I guess uh, one of the things that uh, I think def is definitely helpful is that if you focus on just one or two things at a time rather than trying to learn everything, of course, everybody learns differently. Uh, but I find that uh, if you start by saying, I want to build a simple, I don't know, e-commerce app, and then just uh, finding out gradually one, you know, one piece at a time, uh, what are the different pieces you need? Uh, you, you know, I need to have an API and therefore I look at API Gateway and the Lambda. I need to have something in the database to store all of this data about um, the, the catalog of products and all that. Look at DynamDB and then learn gradually. That way, I think it limits your exposure to how many different moving parts uh, there are in AWS to small pieces at a time so that you get to learn one or two things, um, get some experience, get some mastery first, and then uh, you know, open, open yourself up to gradually more and more things. But otherwise, it can be really overwhelming if you just look at uh, all these hundreds and hundreds of services uh, uh, in, the, in, uh, in AWS and uh, try to make sense of them all. Right, indeed. I think the way that you say it, it's indeed a more structured way of, of learning, of, of climbing the learning curve. And it's not what I did back then. Um, I really had this thing where they call it shiny object syndrome, where you see something and you immediately go deep into it. And then you see another thing, another shiny thing that you go towards and that you want to know everything about. And then of course, um, there's a lot of stuff to learn at a very short time. Um, and when I look back to that, it was uh, a heavy period back then to get it all done. But of course, it also gave me a lot of knowledge about 
all the different things that were available. Um, and, and that is also something that I benefited from later in my career because I already was oriented in a lot of different services that I was able to learn them uh, deeply, uh, quickly afterwards. Yeah, I do think, uh, you know, if you, personally at least, I've, uh, a lot of my learning uh, is, I guess, is not equally distributed over time. They tend to come in the very intensive uh, bursts of maybe six to 12 months when I'm working on a new project and have to try something new and have, a, have to learn a lot of things all at the same time. And I do enjoy those, uh, but uh, that's, I, I don't think that's, that's quite sustainable over a long period of time. If you're constantly being overwhelmed by how many things you have to learn all at the same time, it can be quite stressful. It, it, it always, it will stay that way. Even when you, it's like you say, when you, you're experienced and when you have all this expertise, then you get a new project and, and you again have to solve new problems because that's that's what we are actually. We're, we're just problem solvers um, and there, there will always be problems. <laughs> so even now that I have a lot of expertise and, and when I'm facing a new, yeah, let's say challenge instead of problem, but when I'm facing a new challenge, um, it takes me, yeah, it takes me some time to understand the challenge and to see what is the best fit, what is the best technology to use. And yeah, it's typical for, for programmers, I, I guess. Um, but and at least for me, it's also what keeps me awake at night. <laughs> so just being so passionate about the job and about solving those challenges that, that, that you can hardly sleep because you know that you're facing something and you want to find that solution so badly. Okay, so I guess uh, that's a good uh, good point for us to maybe switch gear a little bit and then talk about some of the work you have been doing uh, using serverless components and uh, running on AWS. Uh, you were with uh, Cloudway um, recent until recently. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about the work that you've done there and maybe what you're doing nowadays. Yep, true. So if I look at the first serverless, serverless project that I've done, um, can of course not specify all of the details, but uh, it it was an event distributing platform. So let's say that you make an, an order and yeah, then the order has to be uh, dealt with within the company. So stuff has to be uh, gathered from, from, from the stock. Um, some things are not in stock. We have to send updates to the client. We have to send updates to the, the people that will deliver the order. Um, and all those events have to be distributed within within the company and towards external companies, um, and that is a that a, a, that is a platform that I worked on and that we fully built uh, upon serverless components and cloud components. And then I'm talking about API gateway with Lambda functions, um, dropping things on Kinesis streams, and then uh, distributing that if those events further within within the landscape. So that is the that is the first project that comes to mind. If I then uh, things that came later on, um, for example, I worked on a data foundation where we um, had this GraphQL API um, that was um, linked with not only um, yeah with a lot of resolvers to get the data, not only Lambda functions but also. Um, just other APIs that were then backed by, by container services. Um, but that also ran on AWS, though it wasn't fully serverless, like I said, um, and we also did not use AppSync at the time, but we ran our own GraphQL server. Um, 
So that are are two examples, and yeah, then oh, another interesting project that I did actually was uh, analyzing the the traffic in Belgium um, with serverless components. So the the Belgium traffic agency they have this API that publishes data about the traffic in Belgium every uh, minute, and that's that's an eight megabytes blob uh, of data that uh, we then split into smaller events and we threw them on uh, Kinesis Firehose and then we go on to uh, both do analytics in real time with Kinesis Analytics and then send out alerts um, if there are traffic jams with Lambda functions um, but also we lend the data on S3 and then use that as a data lake to, to do patch processing on um, with Athena and, and long-term reporting. Um, so that's quite a few different services uh, you've just mentioned there. Um, so uh, you talk about GraphQL, we talk about, uh, I think, Kinesis uh, and um, S3 and uh, Athena. Was it, was it Athena that you were using to do the real-time uh, analytics? No. Um, the real-time analytics we were actually doing with um, the Kinesis analytics application where you can, can write, um, we chose to to write SQL, and, and then you can do those in-application streams that can analyze the data that, that is flowing over your fire hose in real time, and then uh, make aggregations upon those streams. And then from that information, we trigger the Lambda function and update the state in DynamoDB to, to specify there is a traffic jam here or there is no, the traffic jam has been resolved. All right, see, so you were using Firehose's uh, Kinesis Analytics for that, okay. Um, so yeah, usually I think I've seen people use uh, Kinesis Analytics with a data stream instead of a, a Firehose, but I guess that also works. So in that case, uh, does uh, Firehose uh, trigger Kinesis Analytics uh, uh, once uh, the batch size has been met? Because I guess uh, that may have an impact on how real time we're talking about. Because uh, data Kinesis data streams, so you're going to get data right away. But with Firehose, I think they only fire uh, when either the buffer size has been met or the time window has been met. That's right. And I think the smallest time window that you can set is like one minute. So that is true. It is near real time, but um, there was there was about one minute and a half delay uh, on those alerts. But of course, those alerts were about having a traffic jam um, emerging in a certain place. And a traffic jam is, is typically there for for longer time, um, so that is that is a delay that we that we could live with. Okay, sure, that's fair enough. Um, and uh, I guess uh, you also let's talk about the GraphQL side of things. Uh, so that was uh, using uh, I guess running a GraphQL server on EC2. Uh, but uh, have you since then been using AppSync instead? Because uh, uh, I find AppSync with Lambda and DynamoDB to be a really, really powerful and really productive uh, stack. Uh, it's probably my default, my favorite nowadays. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, people need, people should definitely learn, learn about that. Um, it is true that, that um, Back then, we, we ran our own server. Uh, now we use AppSync uh, in, in the project that I do now. Um, it's the project that we are working on together, but also the project, um, which I haven't mentioned actually, uh, that what I'm doing right now, my, my most of my time is spent in my own startup where we make um, a TMS system. So that's a transport management system for everybody who does container transport. 
and uh, that's all backed by um, by Amplify and with Amplify actually provisions the the AppSync uh, server for us. Amplify is like a bunch of things together. Amplify is it's a CLI tool to provision infrastructure as code. It also it are libraries that are front-end components. And but if you go into that CLI and Amplify, you provision, um, for example, a GraphQL API with Amplify, then, then that will be an AppSync, that, that, that will be AppSync uh, behind it. And then out of the box it will it will give you a lot of um, it will always try to give you VDL resolvers, so to, to, to resolve your data. But of course, then uh, not everything can be easily written in VDL. For me, it's, it's a challenge also to how to test those VDL resolvers. Uh, and then, of course, you have to provision Lambda functions to do the, the harder stuff um, to, to resolve the data in your API. Yeah, so I think uh, with uh, AppSync, uh, it makes uh, you know, going direct to DimeDB so much easier. Uh, and uh, if uh, this, the, I guess uh, they were, they've been talking about uh, use, uh, supporting Node.js or, or some limited version of uh, Node.js uh, as a scripting language as opposed to VTO. Yes, I heard, our, I heard talk about that, but uh, that's already a long time that I heard that talk and it's not there yet. <laughs> or do you know more? <laughs> Uh, even if I do, I can't tell you. <laughs> um, but they, they have been talking about it publicly for a while now. So hopefully it will, uh, it will happen sometime soon. So there is another, I guess, another extra week of a reinvent in January. So we never know. Uh, maybe the, uh, you, you get announced that uh, during that week. But uh, but yeah, that would make life uh, even easier uh, for anyone who's uh, thinking about doing more interesting stuff without having to go through Lambda. Which, like you said right now, if I'm doing anything beyond some basic uh, CRUD, uh, I tend to use the Lambda function for that. Um, but if I can write more, I guess, uh, more complex code in the in the request and response template itself, then the, I'll be tempted to do that uh, because that was sidestep having to have a Lambda function and the extra cost invocation time and the code starts, uh, which will help you know, make your application more responsive. But yes, hopefully uh, that gets announced uh, soon and uh, that will make life uh, a lot more interesting, I guess, uh, for a lot of people because the VTL is not something that most people like to use. When we're speaking about GraphQL, I think also an important point to mention is that a lot of people in my environment, they're actually kind of afraid of, of um, GraphQL because they don't know what it is and what the advantages are that it can give you. Um, and I think that also maybe hinders the importance, uh, the the um, the adoption of, of something like AppSync. Is that something that you also face, or is it only in my environment? Um, so from my experience, it hasn't. That's not really the problem. Uh, there are a lot of people with uh, you know, GraphQL experience out there. Uh, maybe the two communities haven't quite intercept, uh, intercepted quite as much as you as you would like. Now you've got your JavaScript community who's really been big on GraphQL for a number of years now. Uh, if you look at the Google Trends uh, uh, over the last couple of years, GraphQL is really up there in terms of uh, interest. 
um, in terms of uh, people that actually use uh, GraphQL and on you know, running stuff on AWS, maybe there's a much smaller intersection there, whereby you got lots of people doing stuff on AWS, uh, but still building RESTful APIs uh, with API Gateway and Lambda. So there is still some a lot of I guess a lot of education need to be had, um, but based on the the amount of interest and uptake in my new Epson Masterclass uh, video course, uh, I would say there's a lot of interest there for people to learn more about uh, both GraphQL but also Epson. I think that people definitely need to check out that course. <laughs> That's true. Um, and, and yes, what you're saying might be true because I actually I've come more from a Java background and a Java community, and maybe there is a little less fuss about GraphQL than in the JavaScript community. Yeah, I think the the adoption has been much um, much stronger in the JavaScript community than the Java community. Um, I'm not sure why that is. Maybe because the the reference implementations for GraphQL servers and all of that was uh, uh, initially in JavaScript. And I guess um, also I think GraphQL is great for um, those uh, client facing uh, applications. Like if I'm building something something like internal APIs, I probably wouldn't use GraphQL for that. Uh, REST works just fine, but when it's something that's consumed by front end, uh, then the GraphQL makes a lot more sense uh, because of the, the, the advantage that the GraphQL gives you in terms of how it solves the M plus one request problem and also being able to minimize the amount of payload that have to be returned to the front end where the front end, the front end can decide uh, what data points they actually want from the back end. Um, so all of those things probably means that uh, teams that focus more on the front end uh, or a full stack team will be more likely to be using GraphQL and uh, also more likely to take advantage of it. Uh, and those teams probably going to be using JavaScript because uh, you know, the front end is already in JavaScript. Um, so maybe that's why you see more adoption in the JavaScript community compared to the Java community. True. true. And let's also, that's, that's... Not, let's also not forget the, um, the fact that GraphQL allows you to do a full introspection of the, the API, which I find very useful because the API actually documents itself because you can just introspect to hey, what, what can I ask for here? What data can I expect? Uh, that's something that is that comes with GraphQL. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That whole self-documenting aspect of it is uh, great. And also, uh, it's not just documentation like uh, you have with, uh, I guess, a lot of Java frameworks or other frameworks have uh, ability to generate API docs, um, but the documentation itself is also binding in that it's type checked and everything so that uh, you don't have to do additional uh, validation in your application code, uh, which makes life a lot easier. And one thing I really like as well uh, about um, AppSync and GraphQL is that uh, I don't have to worry about doing response validation. Uh, you see things like API Gateway, you, you know, you can specify a request model and that that, that delegates to API Gateway to um, do some request um, validation to make sure that the users can't send you invalid requests, but you can't do response validation. You can't, at least you can't tell API Gateway to do response validation. You can attach a response model, but that's only used uh, when uh, API Gateway generates the documentation for your API. It doesn't do any validation. So a lot of the time when we see people are able to extract uh, data from your APIs, uh, doing some kind of an injection attack, maybe SQL injection attack, um, they could have been prevented if the server was doing response validation and making sure that it's not returning data that an endpoint shouldn't be able to return. 
Um, so that is quite useful and quite important security aspect to it, but it's something that you have to do yourself because API Gateway just won't do anything. Uh, whereas with AppSync and with GraphQL, because you are you know, you're creating a type for the response, it's much harder for someone to execute those kind of uh, injection attacks and get the, the data they want from your application because your application literally cannot return data that is not on the response type. Um, so that is that's another aspect that I think is really really makes your life a lot easier when you're working with GraphQL and the AppSync. Yeah, true. I think in the past when when using REST APIs, um, we have solved that because we documented our APIs uh, using Swagger, and then we also validated the responses coming from our Lambda function. We validated the the format of that response against the swagger specification before we actually um, send back the response but then you of course have to do the implementation yourself it's not something that uh, AppSync, like AppSync gives you that yeah absolutely um, so you know you, you can do it yourself and i did that before as well using uh, midi and uh, uh, midi which is a middleware engine for javascript lambda functions and uh, one of the middlewares is the response validate or rather just validator middleware which lets you validate both the request and the response uh, so you could do it but it means that's something that you have to do yourself uh, which means that a lot of time people just won't because uh, either they haven't thought about it because you have the conscience to think about this to even know to do it and also sometimes just actual work that you may not think is worth it until eventually you got hit uh, by an attack yeah true um, and i think that's also what the serverless mindset is about it's about if a component or, or a service can do something for you then use it because probably they have implemented it even better than you can do it on your own and that is, I think, is a mind shift I, that I saw, or that that needs to happen, in a lot of companies also, where people tend to do a lot of things themselves, and they want to take everything into their own hands. But if you design according to the way that the platform can be used, and you use the platform in such a way that it actually takes a lot of work out of your hands, that is where it really starts to pay off. Um, showing that serverless mindset and, and using serverless technology. Yeah, so that's I think um, a lot of, well a lot of people call that the serviceful uh, mindset where you try to do you try to use as many managed services as you can and also you try to delegate as many responsibility to those uh, services as you can as well so that you can focus on just the things that's important to your customers to your business. Uh, so I think that's that's the mindset that really drives uh, a lot of productivities that we see people are getting nowadays uh, when they're using service components, because uh, you just have less to do. You no, know, that there are less for you to do yourself, and therefore uh, less chance for you to mess something up. Because, like I said, uh, uh, if something if AWS is doing something for you uh, as part of the service, then there's a good chance that they're probably doing they're do, probably doing it better. Um, because they have more dedication, more focus on doing those things as opposed to you where you have to, you know, your focus is on serving the needs for your customers. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and I think that is also the same, that is the story that I'm also preaching everywhere. Um, and that is also the story that we're trying to preach with Serverless Days Belgium, for example. But you can, 
only tell the story so many times and then it just becomes the same story over and over again. I think people really need to see the advantages um, by showing them real world examples. And that is then indeed by it, by talking about those examples in this podcast, but also by having uh, people on conferences from companies that have successfully used the serverless mindset or, or serverless technology um, and that, that want to bring forward the story and that want to inspire other people to also uh, follow along and, and use that same technology stack. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, we like we love stories, right? And uh, uh, we are probably convinced by stories uh, more than anything else. And speaking of which, uh, the project we are working on right now, this uh, I guess a social slash uh, sports uh, app where people can uh, organize uh, self organize uh, activities together, and you can book uh, uh, classes from universities who you know attend. Uh, I guess once once the lockdown is finished, you can attend. Uh, you know, uh, basketball classes, uh, Zumba classes, and whatnot. Um, no, that was done by myself, uh, working part-time for a couple of weeks uh, for the client. And uh, no, uh, we, as, you know, as in that time, you know, I was able to set up the entire AWS organization, set up uh, an SCP, um, service control policies for uh, security, set up uh, a log uh, uh, forwarding to uh, centralize the audit uh, account and audit bucket and all of that. And so well as, as well as building the actual application itself Itself, uh, with uh, GraphQL, AppSync, and Lambda, and DynamDB, and all that in just a few weeks. And I think you have, you know, now that you've come on board, you've seen the size of the application. It's not trivial, right? It's actually quite a quite a big piece of application with uh, lots of different moving parts and lots of different features. Um, that is true, and, and and you're only able to to do all of that work in in such a small period of time because you can rely on the platform and you can build on those proven components and, and and that is what what makes you go that fast fast and also high quality of course because those things are often hard to combine but when we use this when we use service technologies and we, we leverage those services from the platform then we can actually combine that speed and the proven quality of those services to really um, bring down that time to production for a product. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, of all the things that I've, I've heard uh, people talk about uh, in terms of, uh, you know, these are the biggest challenges for my for my organization. Pretty much everybody talks about speed, you know, talks about agility, talks about uh, how long it takes to deliver uh, you know, a, a feature or some or some value to their customers. And I think this is where serverless has great has a, the, the biggest uh, I guess value to businesses is just in being able to enable your teams to do things faster. Um, we often talk about uh, the sort of the cost benefit, but for a lot of companies, uh, you know, their cost is so heavily skewed towards engineering time and the market opportunities that, uh, you know, saving I don't know a couple hundred dollars a month or a couple thousand dollars a month just means nothing to them because uh, they're spending hundreds of thousand dollars on engineering time. So if they can get more done with fewer engineers or just you know more quickly with the engineers they already have, that's that's where most of the savings are coming from. That's true. I, I think also the project that we are working on together and also looking at my own startup um, where where we are working with, with people on that project. If you look at the costs, it's almost all uh, costs are all made because we have to pay people and we have to pay developers. 
but not actually the cost of the cloud services compared to that cost for people is negligible and i guess that's what you're saying yes yes uh, and the bigger the bigger the company the more like uh, i guess the the more heavily skilled i find uh, those costs are leaning towards engineering time and uh, uh, and paying for people paying for i don't know bonuses paying for heating in the uh, paying for office space uh, uh, there's all these costs these are all around uh, having you know, people in uh, engineers in your in your company and uh, being able to deliver i guess uh, so those are the most those are the most those are your most valuable and also most expensive resources and you know being able to get more out of those resources and getting them to focus on solving the most expensive and most valuable problems that your company have um, that just makes that's just a no-brainer I think uh, from a business point of view and having seen this uh, I guess uh, this some of these turnarounds I've seen at both uh, small startups uh, like the ones we are working on uh, as well as the large companies like your uh, Lego, uh, like Capital One. I think I'm I'm, I'm 100% convinced that this is going to be the way, uh, you know, this is the way we should be doing things now and maybe in the future as well until maybe something even better comes along. Who knows, maybe in a 10 years time, we can just tell an AI, uh, build me something, you know, with this requirement and then it will just go and do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're totally right. The only um, side mark that I have to make there or from my point there is that if a company is totally new to the technology, it's also what I said before, then they really have to look for an experienced consultant that they can hire for a couple of months to introduce um, their people to the platform and to, to really get over that learning curve a lot quicker because that is where you typically lose time in the beginning because you implement things um, not in the right way just because you don't know how to do it or what is the best practice. Yep, yep, and that's why uh, that's why uh, business been pretty good for me. <laughs> um, there are a lot of companies that are looking at this journey, and uh, like I said, it's uh, investment. But I think the return on investment is definitely uh, worth it because uh, once the teams uh, get going, uh, they can be really productive. And from my experience, uh, a lot of teams are able to you know, self learn a lot of things. And uh, as far as my involvement is concerned, it's mostly just giving them the right you know, nudge, the pointing them in the right direction sometimes uh, because they either haven't thought about uh, um, some other approach because they're only working with the services that they understand and they know, uh, or maybe they just haven't are unaware of some of the newer features in the platform or some best practices, like you said. But those things are often quite easy to com uh, to convey. And I've got a lot of blog posts that I can point people to as well. Um, and I've also been running training and workshops so that uh, um, so that people can you know get up to speed quickly. And I do think that you know, this has been picking up pace. Uh, the last couple of workshops I've been running uh, has been pretty much fully booked every single time. Um, and I do see a lot of people now constantly asking me questions about uh, oh, what are the best practices for this and that as well. And I think that is, uh, I think that is a good sign that uh, uh, adoption is uh, speeding up and it's not just me. And I'm also seeing more and more people starting projects using service components and uh, uh, getting help from other people like Jeremy Daly, like uh, 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 Ben Cahill and other people on social media as well. So I do think this uh, uh, this adoption is uh, picking up and uh, hopefully um, you know, we see more and more people do more for less uh, by going you know, <laughs> right. cloud the right way. Yeah. I'm very happy to hear you say that. Um, and it's 
yeah, it's actually, it's quite amazing the work that you do for, for the community and, and with the workshops and the blogs and then the work for clients. I, I already told you that I'm often wondering if you're actually only one person. <laughs> uh, and, and now that we're talking about all the serverless and serverless adoption here, I think this is also a good uh, moment to, to debunk some of the serverless myths because sometimes I hear a lot of fuss about, for example, cold starts or fuss about, oh, architecture difficulties with serverless applications or difficulties with observability. And those things, um, they're actually not problems, but people, that's why I say that they are myths because people just think that they have, for example, let's go into the cold starts. People often think that they will have a cold start problem, but then you can ask yourself, how many cold starts do I actually have? If I am using this technology to scale up and down, and then I probably have a lot of requests, let's say 100,000 requests per day. How many of those requests will be cold starts? Probably very little. And even the cold starts that are there, you can then tackle that with um, things like provision concurrency or choosing the right runtime for your uh, user-facing APIs to bring down the cold start time. Um, but even there, I I think that it is an overestimated uh, challenge and that it's actually more of a myth. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I've used so many different applications using Lambda um, and uh, with API Gateway or AppSync and the cold start is really a problem because uh, uh, like you said, just it only affects a very small percentage of the request uh, for an application that has got even a recent node, just very moderate amount of traffic. And also, if you're using Node.js, uh, my cold starts, even when they do happen, you know, it takes about 300 to 500 milliseconds, which is well within the SLA for my application. Uh, which typically for web, web uh, for web applications, you know, you're looking at uh, one to three seconds uh, on the 99 percentile. Um, which is you know, something that you can definitely do easily using the right runtime. And even when you can't, uh, for example, maybe if you've got uh, an enterprise environment with lots of API to API calls, then the, well, maybe you can use the provision concurrency uh, to prevent uh, those uh, cold starts from stacking up, so that uh, you know when Microsoft uh, when a microservice calls other microservices, uh, you don't pay the cold start penalty multiple times. Or maybe you have got such a legacy uh, code base that you want to port into serverless, and you don't want to rewrite millions of lines of uh, Java Java code. Then the, yeah, provision concurrency is there now. Um, so there are solutions out there. Uh, I think, like you said, with uh, observability and with, uh, I guess, uh, uh, complex architectures, there are solutions to all of this already. We've been, we've been doing this for five years, uh, but it's just a case of education that if you're coming new to serverless, you're coming to new to Lambda, you may not be aware of the solutions. You've heard about the problems or potential problems, but you haven't yet educated yourself enough to know that the solutions are this and solutions are that based on your situation. Yes, indeed. For, for, for example, for observability, um, I have seen, um, I have worked in projects where we tried to implement all the observability ourselves. And while you can do that, again, someone else has already done it probably. And it's very good to rely then on trusted partners like Lumigo, like Tundra, who give you solutions to um, to really, to, to really have observability over your serverless landscape. 
and you really get a lot of advantages when when you use those uh, when you use Lumigo, for example, and 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 Tundra too, uh, because you can see all the events that came into your Lambda function. You can see um, many details about what went wrong, and it's very easy to get to the core of the problem. Whilst if you're doing that yourself and you're you're trying to implement that observability yourself you will have to pass along trace IDs all over your landscape and it will be your responsibility to do that. Instead, give it to a platform like Lumigo or Tundra or other companies that are out there that can do those things for you. Yeah, compared to like a couple of years ago when I first started working with Lambda, the tooling available nowadays is just so much better, so easy. Like with Lumigo, you just, uh, you know, with, uh, with the project we're working on, you just install the serverless framework plugin and then configure your Lumigo token and that's it. Uh, it's everything gets auto-instrumented. Uh, like you said, uh, you see the, the traces in the Lumigo console. You see the input and output for every single HTTP request as well as uh, uh, if you make a request to RDS or Elasticsearch via WebSocket, uh, sorry, via uh, Socket, uh, you see them as well. Um, and you just have, don't have you don't have to do anything yourself, and it makes the life uh, so much easier when you don't have to do all this uh, manual instrumentation. And in fact, uh, for a lot of the applications I've worked on, I would say the observability is probably even better than some of the other serverful applications I've worked on in the past, uh, whereby uh, you now we're relying a lot on the logs and uh, we're relying on the, a lot of manually logging. Oh, we're doing this, uh, and this is a request received. Now I can just see every invocation uh, for Lambda function and see exactly what the payload was. And I can just easily grab that and uh, put it into a JSON file and then invoke my function locally and, and step through the code as well. So, I mean, tooling is there now. Again, it's just about discovery, it's about education, about making sure that people are aware of those uh, choices. Yeah, true. And again, there, the time that you will spend, um, if you have to do, you go to, to your, if you have to go through your logs yourself, and that will take you a lot of time. And the time that you will lose there, is probably already a lot worth a lot more than just paying for a monitoring tool. Yep, yep, <laughs> no arguments there. Um, the whole reason I'm able to support uh, multiple client projects at the same time is because I don't have to uh, spend too much time finding and debugging things. Uh, I can just go to the Lumigo console and just look for what I want um, pretty quickly. Um, I guess another aspect of that is, uh, I mean, some of this tooling may seem expensive, uh, but at the same time, when you look at uh, some of the prices for uh, Datadog and other, other services like that, they're also not cheap. Now, Datadog is really expensive based on the pricing model they have, which is something like $5 per resource. So... Now, when you've got a small application, uh, you know, as you scale up, as uh, you get more and more things, uh, it gets re really expensive really quickly. Um, and also, you don't get as much out of it uh, as you do with uh, some of the more specialized solutions you have for service applications like Lumigo, like Thundra as well. Um, so I definitely think there's a lot of value to be had with these tools. Uh, and if you use them, then the, you can get, you can get again, more focus on the things that matter to your customers and less time worrying about how, how am I going to debug this? Uh, are the, you know, what tools am I going to, uh, how am I going to get the visibility into my application so that when something goes wrong, I can debug them quickly. Yes, indeed. And, th and that's what it's all about. Yeah, true. 
Um, so are there anything else that uh, you've been working on? Uh, I know you left for Cloudway. We're working together now, but uh, you are starting a new uh, uh, venture as well, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, right. Yes, uh, what I mentioned, like I mentioned before, um, I started a company, a startup company actually, um, that is building a, a transport management system for everybody who does container transport. And so that is about, um, yeah, if, if, if a container arrives in the port, and you have to pick up that container with one of your drivers or one of your subcontractors have to pick it up there. They have to deliver it somewhere and you have to do the whole planning um, and uh, planning around that, um, invoicing around that or communication with your drivers via, via an app, for example. That is something that we are trying to facilitate with our platform. And then even going the step further, of course, because what I just told you about that of course already exists though we want to make the difference by having a lot of integrations with um, for example the ports um, or or your clients and, and that way we can automate a lot of things and take work out of your hands and which means that you can just do more work which means you can do more business and which hopefully means that you can you can get more money <laughs> out of it so that's what we're trying to build and what I'm spending um, actually, like all of my waking time in <laughs> in that company, next to the, the the little bit of sports that I still do, um, but but as I said, I'm I'm so passionate about about the technology and about building a solution like the one I just talked about to to give people yeah opportunity to do more business to to just enable enable people with IT services. And that is a passion that I found and that has not left me since the last five years, I think. Um, and it's, yeah, when, when you're doing what you love, what you love, you, you're never working, they say. <laughs> and that's actually what it feels like for me. <laughs> that's that's good to hear and the best of luck and i guess uh you know your stack is all serverless um anything you can tell us about uh, you know, what your application looks like from the from that point of view yeah yeah sure um yeah you were completely right it is fully serverless um so we at the moment we provision all the infrastructure uh using amplify and which is the what I, the framework or the, the set of services that I talked about earlier, where you have this Amplify CLI that you can use to um, to, to build CloudFormation stacks with. Um, and, and then within that infrastructure, there are, uh, yeah, there is one uh, big GraphQL API um, with, with resolvers uh, behind that. Uh, on the one hand, those are VTL resolvers. On the other hand, those are Lambda functions. Um, then your whole planning, all the transports you have to do, uh, everything um, that you have to manage as, as a business uh, is stored in, in DynamoDB tables. And then we listen on the change streams from those tables to, uh, to trigger asynchronous jobs, to send out notifications, to send out reminders. Um, to, to update clients, to, to uh, notify drivers, um, but also the other way around. Um, we're using subscriptions to, to know when a driver, for example, um, posts a new, a new message to us. Uh, there's a new, an update from that driver and it, it then arrives in real time in the app. Um, 
So I think that is, uh, yeah, in a nutshell, that is the technology that we are using. Okay, so Amplify, um, I've, well, I've heard a lot of mixed things about Amplify. Uh, personally, I haven't been using it, uh, partly because uh, it, um, this, some of the things that I've heard uh, uh, from clients and from friends <clears throat> worries me a bit, uh, but from what I've heard, the uh, Amplify teams are working on addressing them. Uh, some problems such as the, the some changes uh, uh, it, it may want to do because underlying is still using CloudFormation, and sometimes it creates changes that CloudFormation would not want, uh, would not be able to uh, update. Uh, for example, when you got um, uh, multiple uh, global segment index updates, which I think they've just released a change so that the, they can actually do that by doing multiple uh, CloudFormation deployments instead of uh, just trying to do in, do them in one. Uh, but also sometimes I heard people talk about how uh, they struggle to customize things uh, because the resources are all kind of provisioned by uh, Amplify and that they, they don't really have easy way to then modify some of the configurations for those resources. Uh, has that been your experience as well? Have you run into any problems with Amplify? Yeah, I heard those stories too. Um... I must say, yeah, for the for the global secondary index problem, I think that is also that is also something that comes from DynamoDB yeah, that you can only update one global secondary index at a time. I, I think I think that is isn't it right? Is it an Amplify problem or is it a DynamoDB problem? Uh, it's probably a DynamoDB problem that's also reflected in the cloud formation that the cloud formation can only update uh, one index at a time. Uh, but because of the fact that uh, those uh, indexes are created. Uh, by the Amplify, so that the, when you're making a change, you're not explicitly, or at least you're not maybe consciously making those changes so that it's harder for you to plan them so that uh, when it comes to running uh, Amplify, I forgot the, the command, uh, push or publish. Uh, yeah, so that's the only time when you realize, oh, right, this is creating two global secondary index because the whole- That's true, indeed. That is something that I had to be aware of yeah, because I also ran in that, into that, yeah. Uh, but uh, but for other uh, other examples, I think the, the team, the Amplify team, and the community is really dealing with those. I heard the the stories too. I must say I have not ran into a lot of those problems. Um, something that comes to mind is maybe having different environment variables uh, per uh, environment. That wasn't that wasn't totally clear to me how I could do that. But then I found a solution that if I actually uh, fetch the environment variables from the parameter store and then I can configure them per environment but uh, yeah true there I, I had to do some 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 research um, and another thing that comes to mind is the the fact that at the moment it is possible to run an amplify application um, on different accounts and what I mean by that is um, you have a dev account for your dev environment and your your, your featured branches, for example, and then you have a QA account for your QA environment, and then you have a production account. You can do that, but the documentation about that was not uh, was not so good. So I had to figure that that took some figuring out at my own um, to get that done. Because what you will read in the documentation is that they always spin up uh, the dev environment, the QA environment, the production environment on the same account. While of course that is not really the best practice for really going to production with a with a, a larger application 
Yeah, all the demos I've seen of Amplify is always uh, within the same account as well, which is not what most people do, and also not what AWS itself recommends as well. They recommend uh, at least having one account uh, per environment, sometimes uh, per developer. So uh, having the Amplify, I think the team should be maybe demoing how to do that in a multi-account uh, setup because that's also a question I get a lot as well. Is uh, uh, well, you know, you, you you know, I want to use a multiple accounts. Uh, how can I do that with uh, Amplify? And I also have to figure out myself how to do that. Yeah, it, um, yeah, that's that is true. But but it is certain it is possible, of course, because I I have such a setup running and it's 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 working flawlessly now. Um, so maybe I should write a blog about it. <laughs> uh, and and then because now I spoke about challenges with Amplify, but I also feel and that is the actually all the positive that I get out of it is the, the fact that over the last three months when I was building this new platform, it really felt like I was able to do the work of a whole team on my own. And that is not because I'm such a good developer. No, no, that's because because the platform and because of Amplify that gave me so many um, things out of the box uh, that allowed me to go this quick. And then I have to say, in relation or comparing with the few challenges that I faced, I am still very happy at the moment that I chose Amplify um, to, to start building out and, and to start proving my product. Yeah, so let me know if uh, how, the, how that goes uh, in the end, uh, because uh, um, no, I'm quite interested to hear, the, I guess, your story uh, once you've got this uh, product running and you've been maintaining it over time and uh, what are the challenges you run into with a framework like Amplifier, which hides a lot of details for you, uh, which is, got us, I guess, the other the, one of the aspects of uh, the challenges that people have is just when you want to customize things that is not obvious or uh, you might not be able to do it because of the, you know, whatever has been provisioned. Yeah, that, yeah. Done by, uh, that is true. It is what, what, what you're saying. It does a lot of things for you um, and it feels like magic. It's not magic, of course, because if you go look underneath, you can find all of the CloudFormation stacks and how, how they are built. Um, but I can understand that for someone who does not have the, the, the years of experience like me with the cloud platform to build on, if you then go look under the hood and you look at, wow, all of those things that are provisioned for me, now I have to find my way through them because I have to do something custom. Yeah, of course, then again, the learning curve can be high. Um, but in my situation, that is something that I haven't that I haven't specifically experienced because even when I had to look under the hood, um, you just find CloudFormation that you are familiar with. Yeah, I actually think uh, someone in your position is much better suited to using a framework like Amplify as opposed to someone who is uh, completely new to AWS, to CloudFormation, and don't understand uh, uh, what how CloudFormation works and uh, how to configure different resources because uh, then you're in a position where you're automating things you don't understand. And the moment that you need to do something and try to understand how things work under the hood, you are stuck. Uh, in the same way that uh, if you want to... And if that's what you're after, that automation, then you should be using something that's a completely managed service instead, rather than an abstraction layer that hides a lot of the complexity from you, but still expose to you all the limitations and constraints of the online platform. Uh, in the same way that if, I, if I'm using a, a toaster, um, 
you know, I don't need to maintain it. I just want to use it. And when it's broken or when I need to fix it, I get a new one instead. I can't do that when it's my production application. <laughs> so, so I think that I think that I think there's some difference there. Uh, if you're automating things with the Amplify framework that you really don't understand, then you really need to hedge that risk by trying to invest into learning about the underlying platform and how they work. Otherwise, uh, you're just waiting for something bad to happen. Yes, and then when it happens, you don't know what to do because you don't. You you have you have you are not familiar with the things underneath. Mm-hmm. Yep, and and the time when those things happen is often when you are in the most the time time sensitive, uh, a stressful period as well. Is when something has gone wrong. How do you fix it? Yeah, at that moment <laughs> so, you don't have time to get familiar with anything because you have to fix it. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I've been in those positions before, uh, which is why I'm kind of cautious about uh, advocating the use of Amplify uh, framework for customers who aren't familiar with uh, CloudFormation, who are new to AWS, who are new to a lot of this, uh, uh, I guess, ecosystem uh, and what's available to you. Uh, once you've familiarized yourself with all of these, then you just want to automate and uh, do less yourself. Great. Uh, I mean, you know, tools like the server framework, tools like, uh, you know, Amplify and all these other things that can automate things for you. Amazing. And uh, I think uh, me personally, I, I sometimes what I do is that I use Amplify to provision something and then I just copy the CloudFormation into my <laughs> service or YAML or whatever project because uh, I don't want to be you know, writing all of that uh, uh, CloudFormation by hand and, uh, and I can just base my template on what Amplify has uh, generated for me. I think that's probably quite use quite a, I guess a, a, a good compromise in terms of getting some productivity without losing uh, some of the I guess uh, control you have uh, uh, for how you configure those resources. Yeah. Well, for the for the moment I'm still a huge fan. Um I I'm I'm Speaking about my story with Amplify um, in April at a conference in Amsterdam, the serverless architecture conference there. So if people want to hear the full story of my experience with Amplify, they can get it there. Um, but I'll make sure to indeed to, to also touch upon, upon your concerns. And because, yeah, what you say is true that if people, yeah, if you have to look underneath and you don't, and you're not familiar with those things, then it can, it can be quite hard at that time. Um, but I also think that we need to look at the other end of the spectrum. So people that are completely new and that just want to build something simple to get experience with a platform like AWS. Um, if you would then run into to a problem that you can't fix, yeah, it's ju- you're just sandboxing. So it's not, it's not a problem. But then you can also use Amplify to, to really spin up a lot of services quickly and, and to to just go digging around and like, hey, what is happening here? Let me look at this CloudFormation template. How, 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 is this, how is this generated? How does this work? Um, I think you can also use it for that purpose. Yeah, especially for something like a Cognito, which is one of the more complicated uh, resources that you can configure with uh, CloudFormation, especially if you're doing things like uh, uh, social signing, which is not which is pretty poorly documented i have to say uh, i had to i had to do a lot of uh, digging and finding information from different places some from the documentations uh, some from the uh, the AWS forum uh, support forum and some from just asking people who just happen to know the answer so i mean all of that is uh, you know 
is much simpler if we're just using Amplify to say uh, add uh, auth and uh, and add support for uh, social signing, and then you just spit out the cloud permission for you. Um, but yeah, uh, but but I do think that's a good way to learn about how to provision uh, uh, certain resources uh, in CloudFormation. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, so Nick, that's the I think that's the end of the hour, and uh, we've uh, running slightly over time. And also, that's the end of the all the questions I've had uh, as well. Um, is there anything that you want to sort of mention before we go? Maybe uh, what you've been, you know, what are your plans for Serverless Days uh, Belgium this year? Yeah. Um, service days Belgium specifically I hope that by the end of the year we can organize a conference around service technology in Belgium of course let's see how this COVID pandemic turns out and also how many other people want to organize a conference very badly <laughs> because maybe there will be an overflow of uh, conferences then um, but short term the plan is to regularly every month every two months uh, hold a meetup for the moment it's virtual but it will be in real life as from the moment that it is permitted and that way we really want to bring serverless use cases closer to the people and showing the value of this technology so that's for serverless days belgium and then on a personal scale yeah i will just uh, work my ass off uh, as a consultant for Novastar and in my own uh, startup, TransIT. Um, and yeah, in general, for, for service technology, I think that, and that is something that I haven't mentioned yet, but people often say full stack is dead. And that might be true right? because I have never known full stack uh, 10 years ago. I wasn't a developer yet. Um, but I also think that now you can. Um, for not for everything, but for building simpler applications or when using Amplify uh, and when maintaining both the front-end and the back-end, people can actually do this again now because the platform does so many things for you that you can still keep an overview of everything and really do those full-stack projects on your, on your own. Um, and that is that's a message that I uh, that I want to give to people that um, just go out and explore what is possible uh, if you leverage all of this cloud technology to your advantage. Okay, that's a new one to me. Uh, full, st full stack is dead. Uh, I didn't realize that that is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I read a I read a post on Medium. I think it had about three thousand clips, uh, and it, the title was "Full stack is dead." And I thought, oh, is this really true? <laughs> and this, that is how I started thinking like, okay, I don't think it is true. I think uh, you can still do uh, full stack projects if you just rely on all of those proven services to, to also help you with that. I mean, I've worked with a lot of uh, full stack teams. So you may have uh, within the team a specialist for backend versus the front end, but the team itself is uh, full stack and uh, looks after both the front end and the back end of the application. Uh, it doesn't mean that the, you yourself have to be a master of both, uh, and it's difficult enough to master just one area of the of the app, let alone uh, both the front and the back. Uh, but uh, certainly, I think uh, you know 
this whole full stack is uh, is that is probably just a clickbait in the same way that uh, people would know uh, if you probably read quite a lot of uh, tdds that uh, kind of blog posts uh, but people still practice the tdd maybe not in the way that was intended uh, but certainly there's a uh, uh, yeah, I don't think anything quite uh, dies in our industry. Um, there's a lot of dragging on, um, for sure. Um, so yeah, Nick, uh, well, one last thing before we go. Uh, how can people find you on the internet? Uh, any uh, social media, uh, Twitter handles, maybe be, uh, people can follow you there? Yeah, I am uh, quite active on Twitter and my Twitter handle is at the Nick Van Hoof. So it's my name with the with the in front of it because my name was already taken um, um but you can also put it in the show notes probably if it's hard to understand because it's a, it's a name in, in in touch of course um and on um the internet i have a website uh, that's the cloudDeveloper.io uh, where i try to blog reg regularly about serverless technology and about things that i have done uh, using that technology Okay, sounds good. I'll make sure those are included in the show notes. Uh, and uh, thank you again for taking the time to talk to me today. And uh, best of luck in your new venture. And uh, I guess I will see you on our Slack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too. Thanks for having me, Jan. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.